from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Incompetence or corruption, especially in D.C., there was a lot of activity going on. The case was forgotten. Why open up this can of worms? There were things that were just best left buried. Welcome back to Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders. I'm your host, Karen Smith. This is episode 14. This podcast contains graphic language and is not suitable for children. Previously on The Car Barn Murders... As I was approaching what I thought was the end of my investigation, retired Montgomery County detective Jack Toomey asked me if I was in possession of an addendum report written by Captain Theodore Volton in 1954. That report was not included in the file on my original Freedom of Information Act request. I don't know why, since I have evidence that the 1954 report was inside the file in 2016 when NBC Washington did their story on the Carborn case. That very frustrating fact aside, Jack Toomey very kindly emailed me a copy that he happened to have in his files. The 1954 report was filled with new information from two of Captain Volton's confidential informants, and it gave me the links I needed to put all of the pieces together and cross the threshold from probable cause to beyond a reasonable doubt at least in my mind. The addendum had some new names to find in research. First on my list was to find out the identity of ex-Sergeant Green from the DC Metro Police Force. Green's name was mentioned 12 times in this new report and Volton's female informant directly implicated ex-Sergeant Green in the planning of the robbery and murders along with my primary suspect, William Clark. Detailed historical information on Washington, D.C. residents is really hard to find. There are no lists of former D.C. police officers in historical archives, no congressional records with specific names other than the politicians of the time, and the name Green? It might as well have been Smith, Jones, or Williams. Luckily for me, I have a friend who is a crack researcher, and she's incredibly adept at finding needles in a haystack. I gave her a call and asked for help because I was at a loss regarding where to begin to find the identity of ex-Sergeant Green. My friend is a miracle worker, and without her help on this next element, I'd likely still be sitting on my duff, with no hair left on my head, trying to figure this out. 
Stephanie White, I owe you a huge debt of gratitude for digging into the historical records like a piranha with a T-bone. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. You're an angel on earth. Top shelf tequilas and dinner on me the next time we get together, sister. After Stephanie and I talked and traded a few emails, we knew that finding ex-Sergeant Green was going to be a big hurdle. We knew he was an ex-Sergeant, that he had to have left the D.C. Metropolitan Police Force before 1940 and his last name. No first name, no initials. That wasn't a lot of information to work with, but there was one small clue in the 1954 report that gave both of us a jumping-off point. That was the mention that ex-Sergeant Green died in 1950. With that, we went to work, and in short order, I got an email in all caps. Stephanie found him. His name was Jonas Willard Green. Once I had his full name, I was able to find a whole lot more than I bargained for. Jonas Willard Green was the nexus for the entire case, the major link I'd been missing. I'm going to parse everything down and try to keep the majority of the information on Jonas Willard Green focused on the Carbarn case, but there were historical details that spoke to what I consider to be his contemptible character that I need to include. So first, who was this man? Jonas Willard Green V was born on the 4th of July, 1880. His father, Jonas Willard Green IV, was a prominent lawyer in Manassas, Virginia. He died in 1881, when Green was only 11 months old. His grandfather was an outspoken judge who ran for United States Senate in Maine. Jonas Willard Green bragged that he had attended the prestigious Virginia Military Institute, but that was found to be a lie. He actually attended the less prestigious Danville Military Academy in Virginia. After graduation, he joined the D.C. Metropolitan Police Force in 1901. Jonas Willard Green married his first wife, Mabel Kinchelow, in 1901. They had one child, Jonas Willard Green VI, and they divorced a few years later. Mabel Kinchelow listed herself as widowed on the 1910 census. I assumed it wasn't an amicable divorce, and Mabel never remarried. Jonas Willard Green married his second wife, Gertrude Pond, in 1912. Gertrude came from a very wealthy, silk-stocking district family. Her father, William, owned a tobacco store, and he was a very successful businessman. William was a prominent mason with social ties to the political and rich elite of the Gilded Age in D.C. Gertrude lived a charmed life as a young girl among the aristocratic district society, and her father, William Pond, died in April of 1912, around the same time frame as Gertrude's marriage to Jonas Willard Green. Upon his death, William left his vast estate to Gertrude's mother, Hattie Pond. According to Jonas Willard Green, he met Gertrude when her gold mesh handbag was stolen and he was assigned to investigate the theft. Her purse was worth $180 in 1912, the equivalent of about $3,000 today, so it would have been on par with maybe a Louis Vuitton. Jonas Willard Green recovered her purse and returned it, which is allegedly how their relationship began. Jonas Willard Green moved his way up the ranks to police sergeant, and his salary was around $75 to $100 a month, the equivalent of $36,000 a year today. Not a windfall of money, and certainly not what Gertrude was accustomed to, but nevertheless, they got married, and they had two children, son Eugene and daughter Gertrude, named after her mother. In 1915, several officers in the 3rd Precinct, where Green was stationed, went to Atlantic City for various reasons. One officer said that his wife was ill. Another was going on vacation. When Jonas Willard Green put in his last-minute leave slip, he fibbed and told his superiors that his son was ill and he needed to go to New Jersey to help care for him. Atlantic City wasn't a hotbed of racketeering until the 1920s, but it was a vacation hotspot in 1915. Jonas Willard Green left his wife and son back in D.C. for some last-minute trip to Atlantic City. Now, here's where the Green story will really start to pinch your eyebrows. In 1919, 
Jonas Willard Green was making a sergeant's salary, but he and Gertrude purchased a mansion formerly owned by Governor Alexander Shepard. I found several photos of the Shepard Mansion online, and it was quite something to behold. It was on the corner of Connecticut Avenue and K Street, and it was actually three stately mansions all connected into one block-sized building. It was known as Shepard's Row. It was built for Boss Alexander Shepard in 1873 at a cost of $150,000, which was outrageous back then. That equates to over $5 million today. Here's a description of the Shepard Mansion from the website The Streets of Washington. The stately former mansion of Boss Alexander Shepard on the northeast corner of Connecticut Avenue and K Street Northwest was one of the most prominent of the great houses that lined K Street during the Gilded Age. The house was an emphatic expression of wealth and power. While Shepard lived there only for a few years, its prominence in Washington social life endured for another half century as diplomats and industrialists made it their home and held lavish parties in its ornate reception rooms. Palatial in size and fittings, magnificently furnished, an example of the union of great wealth and noble tastes. I don't know any cops who could afford a place like that, let alone a lowly sergeant. Jonas Willard Green bought the mansion for the bargain price of $25,000 in 1919. That's still over 20 years worth of his sergeant's salary if he didn't spend a dime on anything else, including furniture or upkeep or food or clothes or last-minute trips to Atlantic City. Even in 1919, $25,000 was pennies on the dollar for what that place was worth. Why was Jonas Willard Green able to mortgage it at such a cheap price? because he purchased it from Gertrude's mother, Hattie, from the stable of properties bequeathed by her father. That same year, Jonas Willard Green also purchased a large lot on K Street from Hattie for 10 whole dollars, another basement price bargain. By 1921, the Greens owned several other apartment buildings along the K Street corridor that they transformed into rooming houses. They flipped those profits and bought more properties. Then, the proverbial shit hit the fan in March of 1922. A story about the Greens hit the Associated Press Newswire and went national. The titles of the articles ranged from Millionaire Cop to Richest Cop to How I Made My First Million. The storylines were filled with incredible pretentiousness, and it gave me a fantastic glimpse into who the Greens really were beneath their facade of false humility. Jonas and Gertrude Green became two of the wealthiest DC elites on just a policeman's salary, according to the articles. By 1922, they owned nearly every single building and property along the 14th and K Street corridor. It was like a monopoly board with red hotels covering that whole area. At that point, the Green's rooming houses housed 300 people they employed 50 servants, had limousines and chauffeurs, and had banked over $3 million in today's money. The Greens received a personal thank you letter from then Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover, the future president, for providing meals for their tenants during World War I when food rationing became mandatory. World War I ended in 1918, so the Greens had various buildings and tenants dating back several years, even before being gifted the Shepherd Mansion. According to the various Associated Press articles, the Greens asserted that they amassed their great wealth simply by being thrifty, spending wisely, and working their butts off. The scales tipped in their favor with a simple economic choice. They rented a single spare bedroom in their four-room apartment and that tiny little lease miraculously snowballed into the great wealth they had by 1922. $3 million on a policeman's salary. If you believe that crap, I have some swampland in Florida to offload. Jonas Willard Green's affectation knew no bounds. This is a direct quote from Green in a Boston Globe article. 
It was due to Mrs. Green's economy in our early married life that we are where we are today. The first thousand dollars is the hardest to save. It means the twisting and turning of every penny, doing without pleasure that costs money and contenting yourself with actual necessities in the way of clothes. But my wife not only did it, but seemed to get pleasure out of doing it. I've always found real estate and first mortgages the ideal investment. Work hard, save, invest. Don't be a spendthrift. But don't think you can make money without spending some. Property must be kept up. Pay well and get the best help. I select my workmen, plumbers, and paper hangers with the same care as we select our servants. Good grief. I just threw up in my mouth. Gertrude Green got her chance to match her husband's hubris in that same article. This is what she said. Thrift is the best means of thriving. We did not have much when we started. Hence, we decided that we must practice every possible economy and at the same time work hard. We did this, my husband and I, in perfect accord, with the result that we now have reached the point where it is possible for us to enjoy some of the pleasures which we were forced to forego immediately after our marriage. If the young wife will work hard alongside her husband, practice every economy and keep her head steady, it won't be long before they reach the point where it will be possible to enjoy the pleasures they were forced to forego at first. Oh, spare me the platitudes. They didn't have much when they started. The theft of a $3,000 purse was how they met. So remember, if you want to amass a $3 million fortune from a $3,000 monthly salary in just a few short years, be sure to heed the sage philosophical advice of Jonas and Gertrude Green and save, save, save. Twist those pennies. Go without. Work your ass off. Invest in mansions and real estate and be sure to sock some of that hard-earned coin away to pay your servants and chauffeurs the best wages. Most importantly, be sure to have a rich daddy with a legacy of real estate holdings, businesses that you are bequeathed in his will, and a mother who gifts even more to you for pennies on the dollar. Once you've mortgaged dozens of properties, rent hundreds of those rooms to prostitutes, racketeers, and underworld figures for a healthy kickback. It's really simple. Nobody could ever accuse me of not calling things like I see them. And when I read those articles, I was indignant at the sheer dishonesty. I knew there was so much more to the story behind the Carbarn case, and I couldn't find information about ex-Sergeant Jonas Willard Green fast enough. His story plummeted into the deepest depths of corruption and fraud. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. 
Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. The same month that the Associated Press story hit nationwide, Jonas Willard Green harbored a prison escapee in one of his rooming houses. The man had several aliases and had been brought to trial in Alabama for misconduct with a young woman, meaning rape, and he had escaped from a prison camp. He made his way to D.C., and he holed up in Green's rooming house before he hid in a hotel and was apprehended. The Greens bragged about the diplomatic and elite vacationers who occupied their rooms, but I guess a fugitive from justice here and there rounded out the guest register. Throughout that time, Jonas Willard Green remained a sergeant on the D.C. Police Department. In the various Associated Press stories, he told the reporters that he would not quit the force, regardless of his success, because he just loved the thrill of police work. Sarcasm took another front seat in my assessment of that statement. Sure, there was no ulterior motive to keep a badge and a gun when Green had $3 million in the bank and a bevy of rooming houses to protect. Why would Jonas Willard Green pay off another police official for protection from arrest for running houses of prostitution when he could just do it himself? Nothing to see here, folks. Move along. This guy was a real piece of work. In July of 1922, a couple of months after the Associated Press story hit the newswire, Jonas and Gertrude Green purchased the four-story Gibbs Mansion for $110,000, which Green converted into an 11-story office building at a cost of another $150,000. Quick math, over $4 million today. Jonas Willard Green said the rooftop garden would be the best place that side of New York, and he planned to conduct the orchestra himself. Asked once again if he planned to quit the police force, he said, no siree, absolutely not. He would likely stay on until he died. In September of 1922, just six months after the story about their thrift-based wealth hit the front page of newspapers across the country, Jonas Willard Green's decision to leave the police force was made for him. Six charges of misconduct were levied against Green after three district police inspectors tailed him for an entire week. The Metropolitan Police Department spent the time, the manpower, and the energy to shadow Jonas Willard Green 24-7. Somebody on the district police didn't want to deal with Jonas Willard Green's shenanigans or the national spotlight that he shined on the department. The six charges were brought before the police trial board. The bulk of them were pretty minor in nature. Abandoning his beat, driving his personal limousine on duty, naturally, visiting with his wife and daughter during work hours, and not putting his paperwork into the call box. Another charge was more serious. Making an untruthful statement to a superior officer. He was facing one of two outcomes, demotion or being sacked. The administration went after him full force, which tells me that they knew he was a bad apple and they needed hard evidence to either kick him off the force or kick him in the teeth. Teeth it was. On October 3, 1922, Green was found guilty on three of the charges and the district commissioners ruled that he be demoted from sergeant back to private. That went over like a skunk at a garden party. In return, Jonas Willard Green contacted his influential friends for assistance, and he had plenty of them. A week later, pressure came down on the district commissioners to refute the findings of the police trial board. Ten members of the United States Congress and several senators wrote letters directly to the commission on Jonas Willard Green's behalf. Twenty-nine prominent businessmen testified as to Green's wonderful character requesting leniency and strangely, or not, four captains and a lieutenant on the D.C. police force 
testified that Green was a great and charitable man. Are payoffs considered charity? Well, none of it mattered. The district commissioners stuck to their guns and told Green that his new title would be Private Green. That humiliating demotion was too much for a narcissist like Jonas Willard Green to fathom. He was shocked that his friends in the Capitol building and elite society couldn't get him off the hook for breaking the rules. He thundered to the reporters at the final commission hearing that he intended to find out who started the whole frame-up. Nothing but a bunch of bombastic bull. On December 7, 1922, rather than take the demotion to private, Jonas Willard Green shoved his tail between his legs and quit the police force. He announced to the bevy of newspaper men at the final commission hearing that he would be going into the real estate, bonding, and insurance business right after he returned from an extended trip to Europe with his wife. She was in very ill health, you know, and needed to convalesce overseas. What a coward! He ran across the Atlantic with his wife and kids in tow until the heat settled. And that snide little statement was also Green's way of saving face, to let it be known that he had the means to travel to Europe while the peasants toiled back home. Rapt attention was taken away from the police department where Jonas Willard Green was concerned, but his shady dealings within the district were just getting started. In May of 1923, after they returned from their European jaunt and just five months after quitting the police department, Jonas Willard Green opened a high-end clothing business called Mill Green Incorporated at 1220 G Street Northwest. The business venture only lasted nine months. In February of 1924, a New York clothier called the Flapper Dress Company sued Mill Green Incorporated for failure to pay its debts on credit. Mill Greens went bankrupt. A month later in March, the local newspapers were filled with bankruptcy sale ads and the dissolution of Milgreen Incorporated. Dresses, coats, capes, furs, mirrors, dress forms, sewing machines, partitions, rugs, it seemed like everything but the light bulbs went out the door. The bankruptcy court date was pushed forward and ratified on December 2, 1924, for a final hearing that was to be held right after the first of the year. Green's failed business didn't survive that long. On December 27th, Mill Green went up in flames. Curiously, the fire ignited on the second floor where all of the remaining clothing happened to be stored. On the third floor was an apartment occupied by a woman and her daughter. They barely made it out alive after the second fire alarm was sounded. The firemen carried them out of a window and down a ladder just in time. Not one to pussyfoot around, Jonas Willard Green immediately filed an insurance claim for $10,000 for the loss of the stock of gowns and dresses. I guess his bankruptcy sale wasn't a complete success. Arson and insurance fraud? How could anyone think otherwise? The Greens continued running their multitude of rooming houses, which were filled mostly with young, single women who listed their occupations as clerk or typist or nun, that was a bullseye to prostitution. D.C. police officer Mina Van Winkle, the first policewoman to try to clean up the vice problems in the 1920s, was in charge of the Women's Bureau, and she took it upon herself to patrol areas where women of the night loitered, including the vast swaths of boarding houses. Through her professional experience with countless girls and women from the street, Mina Van Winkle also concluded that beauty salons were fronts for prostitution. Beauty salons, well, well. To illustrate another example of the prostitution hustling rings that ran unchecked in DC, here's a quick story from the book Washington Confidential, written by journalists Lee Mortimer and Jack Late in 1950 about their encounters with the underworld. Mortimer and Late wrote in very tactless terms but I fact-checked their assertions on several claims and found out that they were spot-on with their information. During their investigation of DC's rackets, they interviewed a woman who became a heroin-addicted prostitute. This is the story from their book, Washington Confidential. Doris said that she lived in a small town in West Virginia. She and a girl high schoolmate occasionally did a little freelance whoring on Saturday nights on call of a bellboy in a local hotel. 
Once he sent them to a room occupied by two men. One, whose name was Grigsby, tried to sell the girls on coming to Washington. He said he'd put them up in a swell house. The teenagers were afraid of the big city. Grigsby told them the landlady of the house was in the next room and called her in. She was a motherly sort. They consented to come with her. They found themselves in the house of a madam named Billy Cooper on 7th Street in the 1000 block. Interrupting real quick, this is a note from me. This is at 7th and K Street in the area where the Greens had rooming houses. Back to the story. Doris told us that she was an instantaneous success in the Cooper menage. She was only 17. Madam Cooper's clients were charmed. After she'd been in the house a few weeks, the madam asked Doris if she'd like to get a kick. She produced a hypodermic needle and gave the child a shot in the arm. Doris liked the sensation and wanted more. This went on for several weeks, Doris said, and every day Billy Cooper increased the frequency of the shots. One day, Doris woke up, nauseated and ill. Billy Cooper exclaimed, You're hooked! She informed Doris that she had become a dope fiend, that henceforth Doris must pay for the shots. The girl went into debt, though she was taking in up to $50 a day, and no matter how much she made, the dope always cost more. She knew no one else who sold it. She was truly hooked, which was Billy Cooper's original purpose, to keep the girl in her joint and take her money away from her. Just one truly sad, sick story of thousands in Washington, D.C. during that era. The girls coming into D.C. from rural areas and other cities would take a room in a place like the Greens, then wind up as a sex worker and kick back a portion, if not all of their earnings, to their pimp or to the rooming house owner to keep a roof over their head. It's no coincidence that the majority of the tenants in the Greens rooming houses were young, single women with no legitimate means of income listed in the census records. Whether malcontented, bored, or just greedy, Jonas Willard Green hazarded another business venture in 1929. Green's Company Incorporated, located in the brand new National Press Club building. Officer Mina Van Winkle knew her stuff. It was a beauty salon. This is where the story picks back up on the Carbarn case and the links between Jonas Willard Green, William Clark, Mary Branch, and James Weir. When William Clark was interviewed by Detective Frank Brass, he said that James Weir had a half-interest in the Shingle Shop Beauty Parlor. Clark also said, That woman gave it to him. I don't know why, but she gave it to him. A beauty parlor had to be the connection. It said so in the 1954 addendum. I had to dig through a decade's worth of historical phone directories to get addresses for Green's Company Incorporated, the Shingle Shop, and the Modern School of Beauty, owned by James Weir's sister, Neva Berardinelli. I'm not a big drinker, but after I cross-referenced everything, rest assured, I popped the bottle of champagne I bought for this moment and I danced around my office like an idiot. This was it. I found the hook, the intersection, the alliance. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Here is the association that broke the case and solidified the information from the female confidential informant that the murder was planned in a beauty salon operated by Jonas Willard Green and that William Clark was present at that meeting. Gertrude Green's father, William, owned a tobacco shop before he died in 1912. He bequeathed all of his properties to Gertrude's mother, Hattie. Hattie died in 1928, and Gertrude came to own the tobacco shop property, which was located at 1316 F Street Northwest. The Greens changed the tobacco shop into Greens Company Incorporated, a beauty salon, in 1929. Advertisements for their new salon said that it was located in the National Press Club building, which was enormous, and it took up nearly a city block. That building had several entrances, one entrance was at 1316 F Street Northwest. James Weir's Shingle Shop had addresses of 1317 and 1318 F Street Northwest. The Modern School of Beauty was also located at 1318 F Street Northwest. Green's Beauty Salon, the Shingle Shop, and the Modern School of Beauty were all the same business. Located in the National Press Club building, the old tobacco shop bequeathed to Gertrude Green. Clark's mention of that woman who gave the shingle shop to James Weir was Gertrude Green. James Weir worked for the Greens, and the shingle shop was half-owned by Weir and half-owned by Jonas and Gertrude Green. That solidified the direct ties between James Weir, William Clark, and Jonas Willard Green. The 1954 report detailed the female informant's statement that the robbery and murders were planned in a beauty salon operated by Jonas Willard Green and that Green, William Clark, and several others were present at this meeting. After I made that connection, I knew the female informant was telling the truth and that her information, as well as the details provided by the male informant, were at the crux of the solution to this case. There was more work to do but the groundwork was set, and the one thing left to figure out was why the car barn case sat on a shelf, unsolved for decades. Jonas Willard Green eventually moved the main office of Green's Company Incorporated to 2540 14th Street Northwest, likely because the superficial, pious partnership between Jonas and Gertrude went down the toilet. For all of their sanctimony and platitudes back in 1922, they got divorced in 1932, and Jonas Willard Green married his third wife, Catherine. Green moved his office to Columbia Heights on 14th Street, just two blocks from Gerard Street and Harvard Street, where William Clark and James Weir lived. During Mary Branch's interview the day after the murders, she said that a police officer came to her apartment on Sunday night and had a talk with William Clark. She said the officer had blonde hair and his name sounded like Creek or Greek. Jonas Willard Green had blonde hair, and he lived just two blocks away. Mary Branch also said the officer's age was around 29 or 30, and she saw him in uniform on 13th Street Southeast. Jonas Willard Green was 55, 
and he hadn't officially worn a police uniform since 1922. The district detectives investigating the Carbarn case never verified or refuted Mary's claim about a police officer, which told me there was no point because they already knew Jonas Willard Green's identity. That could also explain the obvious fold over Mary's interview questions about a police officer and his phonetic name and description. Mary Branch had a habit of telling half-truths when it suited her own interests, as evidenced by her convenient amnesia about Francis Gregory's name and for giving William Clark a false alibi. Mary knew exactly who Jonas Willard Green was, just like she knew Francis Gregory. Recall the letters that William Clark wrote from prison? One of them asked Mary Branch to contact a man in the office of United States Senator Carter Glass. I wondered how someone like William Clark would have a connection to a United States Senator, but I could now conclude that one way would be through an association to Jonas Willard Green and his plethora of elites in the U.S. Capitol who wrote letters to the D.C. Commission on his behalf during his trial. Not only that, Carter Glass was from Lynchburg, Virginia. Jonas Willard Green's family was also from Virginia, and his father was a prominent attorney. Carter Glass could have been an old family friend of the Greens. Despite all the newspaper reports and public spectacle surrounding Jonas Willard Green, strangely, Captain Volton never fully named Green in his 1954 report. Volton referred to him only as ex-Sergeant Green, which might connotate that Volton didn't know who Green was, but a paragraph at the bottom of the second page of his report dispelled that notion. Volton wrote, To my recollection, there was a man by the name of Orville Staples, also known as Jack Staples, who had been convicted of bootlegging and gambling, and who was also a former D.C. policeman discharged that did know, worked for, or was closely associated with ex-Sergeant Green. Volton knew of this man, Orville Jack Staples, and his affiliation to Jonas Willard Green, so he knew exactly who Green was, but he didn't name him outright in his addendum, only referring to him as ex-Sergeant Green. Another question for the back burner. I had to research Jack Orville Staples and Volton's allegations about bootlegging and gambling to see if I could find a connection between Staples and Jonas Willard Green. Ex-cop Orville Staples had quite a track record, and there was only one brief mention of him in the 1935 file. A known slot machine racketeer was questioned about the car barn murders, and he mentioned Orville Staples during his interview. He said, Jack Orville Staples, an ex-policeman out of Washington, D.C., is connected with a slot machine hijacking outfit, and he is also connected with the Oriole Coin Machine Company in Baltimore. Staples used to trip liquor between Baltimore and D.C. I found a glut of historical news articles about Orville Staples, none of them good. In the mid-1920s, Staples was a district police officer and he was constantly in trouble for one thing or another. When Staples needed help, he ran to his fixer and defense attorney, Thomas Blanton, a congressional house representative from Texas. In 1928, Staples was accused of heisting a truck filled with bootleg liquor from two drivers headed into the district from Philadelphia. Staples shook them down for a cut of the profit. Staples was also accused of accosting a woman in her own home. Just like Jonas Willard Green before him, Staples was brought up on charges before the police trial board. His defense attorney, Thomas Blanton, was a showboat. He was loud and obnoxious, and he would shout over the prosecuting attorneys to make his point. After the police trial board recommended that Orville Staples be fired from the police department, Thomas Blanton took it up a level to the district commissioners to have that recommendation reversed. Thomas Blanton said that the charges against Orville Staples were a frame-up because Staples ratted out the police chief and other administrative higher-ups for drinking on duty in defiance of prohibition. Staples also alleged that his superior officers routinely took payoffs from racketeers around town. Staples told Blanton that certain people were immune from prosecution, dependent upon their willingness to pay off the police, and Staples boldly added that the U.S. District Attorney's Office was part of the scheme. 
Staples wasn't wrong, and Blanton made his client out to be the whistleblower rather than a participant. The lowdown about his superior officers went over like poop in the punch bowl, because it was true, and Staples was labeled as a persona non grata. The police administration had it in for Staples as a result, and they recruited one of their own to put the final notch in his commission case. One of Staples' co-workers, Officer Frederick Schenk, was the star witness for the police department in the district commission trial, and Schenk threw Staples under the bus. After Schenk's testimony, Orville Staples was summarily canned from the police department. Not so fast. Of course this story has a twist. A few months later, star witness Frederick Schenk was arrested for firing five shots at two other bootleggers when he stole their truck filled with liquor. He was found guilty and sent to Leavenworth Prison. Frederick Schenk was either extraordinarily arrogant and stupid, thinking that he would be insulated by the police administration, or he was just a patsy. Regardless, Frederick Schenk wrote a letter to Orville Staples from his prison cell. Schenk apologized to Staples for actually framing him. As a result, Staples was offered his job back on the DC police, but he turned it down. Staples did a complete 180, and he went into the slot machine and bootlegging rackets. On February 12, 1934, Staples was arrested for stealing a slot machine from a local business. His brother, Ralph Staples, was arrested several times for running bootleg liquor into the district in cars that were rented in Orville Staples' name. He left his badge and gun behind to become the kingpin of the DC slot machine and bootlegging rackets. I was unable to find any newspaper articles that directly linked Orville Staples with Jonas Willard Green. All I had was the word of Captain Volton in his 1954 report that said they were somehow affiliated. After the 1922 Associated Press news articles about Green's dubious wealth and the subsequent fallout, Jonas Willard Green flew under the radar and he stayed out of the limelight. He operated his illicit rackets prostitution, and likely loan sharking quietly in the background until he died of a heart attack in 1950. There were some really important reasons why Jonas Willard Green was never arrested or mentioned in the papers after 1922, other than in the real estate and probate sections. I've talked about the district government setup in the 1930s, along with district commission president Melvin Hazen. Hazen was directly appointed to that position by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Hazen was known around town as the Lord Mayor of Washington, which wasn't meant to be a compliment. He wined and dined with the President and others in the Capitol, and he chose to work with the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department in his portfolio of duties. Hazen worked closely with Superintendent of Police Ernest Brown on all matters police-related and the problematic rackets that were operating wide open all over the district. I mentioned that sweet deals were made for certain people at the top, and most often there was a fall guy in place at each racket joint who would agree to go to jail in place of the boss if the police decided to raid it, regardless of any payoffs. These were called programmed raids. They were a sham and the police used them to satisfy an angry public and make it appear as if the cops were doing their job. Programmed raids were used to show anyone who asked questions about why certain rackets were still operating that the police did go into that specific business, but nothing illegal was happening at that moment. The reason nothing illegal was happening was because the racket owner was tipped off by the cops in the first place. When the heat came down every so often with demands for the police to rid the city of the gambling, bootlegging, and prostitution rackets, the special places, the ones that paid the police off, would get a hot tip beforehand and no arrests would be made of anyone in charge. Maybe the poor schlubs bellying up to the bar might be arrested and charged with disorderly conduct, then released with a small fine. The places that didn't pay for police protection were the ones to go down on the books and give the public the perception that crime was being eliminated. It was a racket within the rackets. The district commissioners, 
especially Commission President Melvin Hazen, knew exactly what the police department was doing and gave quiet permission because the profits were just too plentiful for everybody. History has shown that if illegal rackets flourished in a city like D.C., rest assured that the people in charge of their suppression were pocketing money to allow them to operate. Commission President Melvin Hazen ran with the elites in power, and he had a lot of friends in the White House and in the Capitol building. He could fix a lot of law enforcement problems for his special friends. Jonas Willard Green wasn't just Melvin Hazen's special friend. They were cousins. If you have information about the Car Barn Murders, go to the Shattered Souls Facebook page and leave me a message. Shattered Souls The Car Barn Murders is produced by Karen Smith and Angel Heart Productions. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.